Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, hello. Thank you for joining me this Thursday, December 14th. Got all your holiday shopping done? I hope so. I have no advice. (laughs) You know, usually if I ask a question like that, I'll tell you what I'm doing or I'll give you some advice. I got nothing. You're on your own. Though I will say when I get those emails from Kohl's that I have for one day only 40 percent off, I almost always go to the Kohl's website and find something I can't live without. Um, and I will suggest to make holiday shopping more fun if you're the kind of person who doesn't really get into it. Do it my way. A gift for them, a gift for me, a gift for them, a gift for me. And that way, every time you go shopping, it's really exciting. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm not getting ready to take holiday time off. You're going to have me all next week. So um just want to... Just want to check in and see how you're doing for the holidays. Okay, well, let's get to it. So much going on. The impeachment caravan seems to be moving along. Uh, They have no evidence of crimes, but Donald Trump has made it clear that he expects this Congress to impeach Joe Biden to uh, retaliate. And, you know, that's actually what they're saying. They're, the Republicans are saying, oh, you did it to us, so we're doing it to you. Not, yes, um, there were serious charges against Donald Trump, you know, insurrection, trying to overthrow the government. But um, it's punishment. It's retribution. It's what we are going to be seeing more and more of. And, you know... I'm not saying everybody in the world has to be madly in love with Joe Biden. I'm not saying everybody in the world has to even be madly in love with the Democratic Party. But right now, the Republican Party is not giving us a reasonable or viable presidential possibility in Donald Trump. This is a man who has said that he is going to go after, he's going to use the DOJ to go after NBC and MSNBC and charge them with treason. Dictators go after the press first because once they get the press out of the way, the rest of it is easier. And even if you're not a fan of Joe Biden, even if you have questions about the Democratic Party, there is there is not a viable alternative. You know, you can wax poetic all day long about Nikki Haley, but Nikki Haley is not going to get the nomination. It is exceedingly doubtful if Nikki Haley will even be offered the vice presidential slot. Because Donald Trump has said going forward, it's not about experience. It's not about dedication to the Constitution. It's not about the rule of law. It is about loyalty to Donald Trump. That's the only litmus test. And um, I'm not sure that um, 
Nikki Pretzel Haley is going to pass that litmus test. You know, if you if you listen to her, you can tell she is desperately trying to avoid ticking off the MAGAs, even though left to her own devices, I think that there would be more division there. And, you know, she said she'd vote for Donald Trump for president. Donald Trump, who has said he is going to dismantle our government. And there is no reason to think he's joking about that. People are like, oh, that whole I'll be just be dictator for a day. Well, no matter what he calls himself or doesn't call himself, this is a man who has said he is going to uh, take apart the civil service. He's going to get rid of career civil servants and replace them with people who are loyal to him. He's going to clean out the DOJ and the Department of Justice lawyers are going to be his weapon of vengeance. He says these things. This isn't me. And this isn't hyperbole. If anything, I'm toning it down from what he has said. So, um, you know what? I don't care if um, if you have problems with Joe Biden because the alternative, it's not a choice between a Democrat and a Republican this time around. It is a choice between a Democrat and the loss of our government, anarchy. Donald Trump learned his lessons last time. The bureaucracy slowed him down. How many people that were in his administration in very high positions talked later about how they stayed where they were so that they could rein in his worst impulses? He's learned his lesson. Those people aren't going to be around in his next term. They're just not. It's going to be the John Eastmans of the world. It's going to be um, Sidney Powell's. It's going to be the Rudy Giuliani's. Those are the people who are going to be leading our country if we let Donald Trump throughout whatever means, whether we just decide there's a we're you know, we don't like Joe Biden. So we're going to show him we're going to vote for somebody else. It's going to be a protest vote. Remember how well that worked out when you didn't like Hillary Clinton? Do we never learn anything? Okay. One of the things that I want to share with you is um, some new sound. We have um, Paul Ryan was um, hired by a company. They were putting on a big program for CEOs. And, you know, they bring these high-profile people in to speak. Paul Ryan had some very interesting things to say about the current Republican frontrunner, Donald Trump. Listen to former House Speaker Paul Ryan. How will history regard people like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and people of that their ilk? Maybe it's just just the two of them. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, they're friends of mine. I think they called out, look, Trump's not a conservative. He's an authoritarian narcissist. So I think they basically called him out for that. 
He's a populist authoritarian narcissist. So historically speaking, all of his tendencies are, you know, basically where narcissism takes him, which is whatever makes him popular, makes him feel good at any given moment. And he, and he doesn't think in, in, in classical liberal conservative terms. He thinks in, in an authoritarian way. And he's been able to get a, a, a big chunk of the Republican base to follow him because, you know, he's the culture warrior. And so I think Adam and Liz um, stepped out of the, the flow and called it out and, um, you know, paid for it, paid for it with their careers. Populist, authoritarian, narcissist. Former House Speaker Paul Ryan who uh, was opposed to Trump and then when Trump was elected, went in when it was apparent Trump was going to force him out, went into Donald Trump. God only knows what um, promises he made or how he kissed the ring, but Trump kept him around. And uh, then he left. He's been a board member of Fox Cable for a long time. Likes to leak every once in a while how he's always trying to moderate them. But, you know, nothing ever changes and uh, we only have his word for it. But still a pretty prominent, pretty well-respected former Republican Speaker of the House calling the current Republican frontrunner to be their nominee for president a populist, authoritarian narcissist. Let's take a break and be back with more after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. This is WCPT820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT820. There is, um, oh my gosh, there's so much that, you know, there's so much that I want to share with you every day that I run out of time on a pretty regular basis. So um, these are kinds of some of the uh, odds and ends that I wanted to share with you earlier. um, Nancy Pelosi, earlier this week, Nancy Pelosi was interviewed on MSNBC. And uh, she talked about our current Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, particularly, you know, they were having a discussion about the impeachment, which the House has voted should definitely be moving forward. Okay, we are moving forward on the impeachment. Why? Well, because there's things, you know, there's things there's things and there's stuff and and there's going to be more things and just wait till you hear about all the things. I know makes about as much sense to me as it does to you. So um, in true Nancy Pelosi style, she did not mince words, not that you would ever expect her to, um, but she absolutely did not mince words. Listen to this. 
He says he has no choice. The fact is he has no respect, no respect for the Constitution of the United States, no respect for his own members who he's asking to vote for an impeachment with no basis, with no basis. Uh, You referenced when we impeached the president a number of years ago because of his refusal to implement the send the aid to Ukraine uh, that was voted by Congress and he was supposed to send but was threatened to withhold it unless he got certain favors done for him uh, by President Zelensky and but he said to me what's the problem with the call it was a perfect call yes it was perfectly impeachable and so they have no basis and so there's their excuse for having no basis is they have no basis. Does that make sense to you? Does that make sense to you? <sighs> when this was uh, still this impeachment idea was still being debated in the rules committee, a uh, Democrat from New Mexico, Teresa Leger Fernandez, spoke. And again, you heard Nancy Pelosi talk about how. They are trying to create some sort of reason for impeachment, and they keep implying that if they can just move forward with it, like stuff's just going to appear. And, you know, they are desperate to try to impeach Joe Biden because of things that his son has done. And, you know, that's just not how it works. (sighs) So, um, again, this New Mexico Democrat, Teresa Fernandez, talked about how um, Mike Johnson is a hypocrite. Um, Then there is no rationale for supporting this impeachment. And, you know, he's talking about how Joe Biden refuses to cooperate. Cooperate with what? Uh, I'm confused. And apparently so was Teresa Fernandez. Um, But she had a lot to say about Mike Johnson and impeachment. Listen to this. The more than 39,000 pages of documents Republicans already received and the 62,000 on the way prove that President Biden follows the rule of law as he has done his entire career. He has fought corruption at home and abroad and has upheld his most sacred oath to the Constitution, an oath he has made ten times throughout his dedicated career of public service. In contrast, we've seen House Republicans repeatedly conceal information, hide it from the public, and selectively leak lies and innuendo that distorts the truth. While the America public, while the American public waits for Congress to do its job to fund our government and lower costs, extreme MAGA Republicans want an impeachment inquiry to create more division, more chaos. This do-nothing Congress is all about chaos. It's a do-nothing-but-chaos Congress. The American people know what evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors looks like. We know what it feels like. Evidence of an impeachable offense looks like the January 6th insurrection, where violent mobs stormed the Capitol and threatened to hang Vice President Pence and kill Speaker Pelosi. They attacked us because Trump wanted to delay the certification and overturn the 2020 election. You know, it's incredible. 197 Republicans voted against impeaching Trump 
for an insurrection that they witnessed and experienced firsthand as they ran for cover or barricaded themselves in their office. But now, they're going to be okay with continuing an impeachment investigation into Biden when a deluge of evidence shows there's no wrongdoing. Are you kidding me? Sadly, Teresa, they are not kidding you. They are absolutely not kidding you. This is retribution. This is revenge. This is not what impeachment is supposed to be about. I mean, frankly, I thought um, back in the Bill Clinton days, the fact that they were impeaching him because... He uh, was part of a sex act in the Oval Office. I thought that was, um, you know, was that high crimes and misdemeanors? I mean, was it reprehensible? Yes. Was it bad behavior? Yes. Was it stupid? Yes. But was it high crimes and misdemeanors? Why is it that when it seems to be the Republicans are in charge, that the bar for whether or not to impeach is very, very low? At least in the Clinton impeachment, they could say, oh, well, you know, he uh, wasn't truthful. And, um, you know, we could split hairs all day about the fact that um, Bill Clinton felt he was being truthful Because it was not what he considers a sex act, whether or not you would consider it. So they were saying Bill Clinton lied, Bill Clinton lied. Well, again, at least they had something that they were complaining about. The Republicans keep saying that they're going to come up with all of this evidence. There's going to be all this evidence. Oh, you wait and see. Just like Rudy Giuliani, who's on trial right now. And he leaves court and the reporters ask him, you know, are are you going to apologize to two of the women you accused of all kinds of voter fraud and put through hell? He was absolutely not because I was telling the truth. Well, Rudy, where's the evidence? And the and Rudy Giuliani looks at the reporter. You'll see. You'll see. That's that's the big response. We'll find it if we, if we just can open the impeachment investigation. That's that's when we'll find the evidence, honey. That's not supposed to be how the system works. It's like if the feds showed up at your front door and arrested you for murder, and you're like. Where's the evidence? And they're like, well, once we get to court and we start calling witnesses, the evidence will appear at that point. That is not how it works. That's not how it works. There's one more sound clip um, from earlier this week that I didn't have a chance to share with you that I'd like to share with you now. We um, there have been two cases going on in Texas, Ms. Cox and Ms. Scott. Ms. Scott had a miscarriage and was arrested uh, and charged with a felony. She was later released because they determined, well, you know, she really didn't do anything to cause the miscarriage. She just had one. 
But she was arrested. She was charged with a felony because she had a miscarriage in the toilet. Do you know how many times that's exactly what happens to a woman? If you're a man, you may not know that, but it's more common than you think. She was charged with a felony, which was um, cooler heads later prevailed and the charges were dropped. And then there was Ms. Cox, who um, was told that she had to carry her severely impaired fetus to term because, you know, even if it survived, even if it didn't die in the womb, uh, they thought that it should be born alive so she could watch her child die within minutes, gasping for air and in pain, because, yeah, that's really what you want to do. Oh, and also, if that were the case, doctors told her if she carried it to term, chances are her she would lose her ability to have any kids in the future. So while Texas was deciding she didn't warrant an abortion, she went out of state to get her procedure. On Morning Joe, um, Molly Jong Fast was a guest and uh, she was talking to <sighs> Mika Brzezinski, and they talked about that case. Listen to this. Making this woman carry the baby to term, mm-hmm. so if, if it survived the birth, it then would die gasping for air in front of her. The mental anguish this woman has been put through is enough to put her in a deep depression, uh, to make her extremely anxious, impacting the rest of her family, let alone the physical trauma that she was going through, going to the ER up to four times, elevated vital signs, leaking fluid. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm not a doctor, but these are just facts yeah. that I am sure 60-year-old white male far-right-wing Trumper Ken Paxton did not consider or didn't even worse, didn't care about as he fought this for whatever clicks he wants to get or support on the far right. This is not where America is. And abortion, what he is teaching most Americans as this story gets amplified and as this woman has to run away from the state of, a t- of Texas to get the health care she needs, what this is teaching America is what America already, most of it knows, that abortion is not just some lazy woman who had sex by mistake. Like Ken Paxton had sex by mistake with someone and got someone pregnant and now needs to get rid of it. That's like crazy. This is health care. Yeah. These are doctors saying, unfortunately, we have to make this very difficult decision because we need to save the life of the mother and the life of this fetus is not viable. Yeah. So once again, in Texas, far right Republicans are showing Americans just how sick and cruel they can be to women when they are seeking life-saving health care. If I were a woman in the state of Texas, I'd be afraid. Yeah. I'd be literally afraid to lose my health care and my rights. And I would add that Kate Cox proved to us that these exemptions are not true, right? We saw a woman having a baby you know, 99% chance of a miscarriage or death right after birth. And the state said no, right? 
this is the life of the mother, right? She has had been in and out of the hospital, and the state is saying, well, prove to us that you're really going to die. I mean, so I think that what I think what? is so important about this Lord. case is that it, it really proves that these exceptions are not true, that these bans that were built with exceptions, they're not really exceptions. They're not yeah. really available. They're not really available. By the way, in Florida... People are waiting for the state Supreme Court decision on uh, on a 15 week abortion ban. We're going to talk to a reporter from Florida right after this. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk. 820 a.m. WCPT Willow Springs and online at WCPT 820 com where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined now by Giselle Belido, who is the political editor at Floricua, which is the Courier Newsroom uh, outlet in Florida. Giselle, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Joan. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you today? Braving the winter here in Florida, 75 oh, degrees. Oh, I hate you. Come on, don't rub that in. <laughs> That is not nice. We, you know, no, okay. Well, maybe you have nice weather, but we have better politics in Illinois <laughs> for the most part, not across the board. I can't argue with that. I certainly can't argue with that. So, I was just listening to the to the segment of your show, and uh, you know, I have to say. What is happening in Florida with reproductive rights is, uh, you know, what is happening in Texas with reproductive rights. So, um, you know, we're we're bracing for the court's decision. Uh, The good news is that, uh, you know, 68 percent of female voters have expressed uh, their support for a constitutional amendment to protect abortion rights. And uh, what is more revealing is that than half of registered Republicans, um, 53 percent would vote to protect abortion rights in Florida. So, you know, we, we still have a sliver of hope. Boy, that would be a referendum on the ballot that I would sure love to see, Um, because that's, you know, we, uh, you know, up here in Illinois, we do think of Florida kind of in the same breath as we uh, we talk about Florida and Texas kind of these days. It seems like both of the of of those states, like you're you guys are leading the way in um, banning books and um, restricting what teachers can teach and don't say gay. And um, I, I, I feel I feel really sorry for what's going on in Florida. But Giselle, I'm so glad that there are people like you who are fighting the good fight. So tell me about the Supreme Court is considering uh, what a 15 week abortion ban. Is that what's before them right now? Uh, yes. If, um, you know, as you know, in September, the Florida Supreme Court heard oral arguments, you know, about, a, you know, about a lawsuit brought by Planned Parenthood and the American Civil Liberties Union that challenges the 15 week abortion ban. So, um, you know, the court's decision, as I said, is expected before the end of the year. If the court ultimately approves the 15 week ban, then a six-week ban signed into law by DeSantis would, you know, would take effect 30 days later, and this would cut off access to abortion early in the first trimester, which is, as you know, before many women know they're pregnant. Yeah. So you said uh, be- before it, the end of the year. 
So do you think, I mean, this is like this week or next week you're planning to, do you think you'll hear about this? Well, Representative Scamani uh, said today, posted today on X that, um, you know, something was expected Thursday at 11, but nothing actually happened. So we're still waiting on that. I don't know if that's good news or bad news, that they're still debating it. Yeah. Um, Florida, correct me if I'm wrong, Giselle, isn't Florida one of the states that so far has refused to expand Medicaid? Yes. Now, here's here's the thing. Uh, there's no reason why Governor DeSantis, you know, would choose not to expand, you know, Medicaid, particularly when there are roughly 1.1 million Floridians who are getting uh, health insurance that they would be eligible for. I mean, uh, Florida could actually save $200 million per year by expanding Medicaid, you know, according to an analysis by uh, the Florida Policy Institute. But I spoke with, uh, you know, with Florida Senator Victor Torres Jr., mm-hmm. uh, a Puerto Rican Democrat, and he said, you know, this is just 20 years of Republican control. It's all about power, about who controls the budget. But mainly, he said, it's all about not giving Democrats a win. So this is the kind of political wars, culture wars that we're waging, like the book bans. You know, I I know you've heard about that. And uh, we now have the distinction of being number one Mm -hmm. in school book bans, you know, across the nation. So that is affecting not only students, but teachers as well. I've been reading that you that in the state of Florida, you've been having a terrible time trying to uh, trying to get teachers, trying to get new teachers, trying to get teachers to stay. Where does where does that stand right now? Well, uh, the situation with the teachers, see, actually, the don't say gay ban and uh, the, you know, the book bans have fueled the teacher exodus. You know, together with, of course, you know, Florida teacher salaries remain, you know, the lowest in the nation. But uh, here's something interesting. As of the spring of 2023, the Florida Education Association reported that there were over 5,200 teacher vacancies in the state. This is more than double the 2,200 vacancies reported when Governor DeSantis took office. So I I feel this is a direct consequence of, you know, the extreme swing to the right in the classroom. You know, uh, I spoke with a a young teacher. You know, she she told me that she loves Miami. This is where she grew up. This is where her family and her friends are. But she says she wants to keep teaching. She will need to leave Florida. So, you know, we keep losing, losing teachers. And, you know, that's a tragedy for our students. If all of these things are taking place in Florida under the auspices of the DeSantis administration, should I take that to mean that the majority of the people in Florida like and support these ideas? See, that is a difficult question to answer, in all honesty. Uh, His numbers are down. His numbers are down, definitely. But I, I don't want to be cynical about it, but I unfortunately think 
that a lot of people just don't really care about these issues. You know, they're worried about the economy. They're not really focusing on, you know, the repercussions where the state is heading. Um, we have some Democratic, actually, representatives like Maxwell Frost, who I've, you know, spoken with, calling him a fascist because of, you know, the situation that he's creating in Florida with the book bans. You have to, you know, you have to understand that 30% of the books banned, and these are books approved by educators for children. These are not adult books. Uh, include characters, you know, of color and themes of race and racism. 30% include characters who represent LGBTQ identities. And here, Joan, is what I find most alarming. Florida Attorney General Ashley Moody defended the bans, and she said that public school libraries should convey the government's message. Well, that's pretty terrifying. Yeah. That they are a forum for government speech, not a forum for free expression. I would like everyone to think of that for a moment, what that means. That is indoctrination. Yeah. Without question. Uh, what happened? What was the reaction when, when she said that? I haven't heard anything. You know, I, I mean, of course... People like Maxwell Frost, people like Anna Scamani, you know, our Democratic representatives, they speak out on this. But so far, I don't see it, you know, really making any difference, any significant difference, you know, to give me any peace of mind. Yeah. Um, I want to we need to take a break, Giselle. But when we come back. We talk a lot on this show about <clears throat> the low information voter or, as you described, people who are, you know, going about their daily lives and not doing a deep dive into politics. I want to talk about what their concerns are and how they are making whatever judgments they make about, say, who to vote for. I'm speaking to Giselle Bolito, who's the editor at Floricua in uh, a Courier Newsroom publication in Florida. We'll be right back after this. Take Jonas Pazito, live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. You're listening to WCPT 820 because facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm talking to the political editor of the Courier Newsroom Florida publication, Floricua. Giselle Bolito is here. And um, <laughs> Giselle, I feel really bad. It's like you and I were talking about, you know, well, no, they're not expanding Medicaid because God forbid it should look like the, the Democrats won anything. And yeah, there's don't say gay. And yeah, we're banning books left and right. And oh, yeah, we might also be banning abortion. It's like I get, Giselle, that the weather's great, but I don't understand <laughs> How people can tolerate this. Is it, is it, we talk on this show about somebody we call the low information voter. 
someone who is concerned about their job, concerned about their house, their kids, their pets, getting the kids to sporting events on time, and really doesn't pay attention to the daily ebb and flow of politics. Does Florida have more than its share of those folks? And how do you think the people of Florida are making their political judgments based on what? Um, To answer that, I would have to say that I think that one of the greatest damages done to the political discourse was the, you know, the invention of that phrase, um, alternative facts. So I find that, you know, our, you know, people in general here, I don't know across the nation, but in general here are very partisan and they listen to one radio station, read one newspaper, watch one news channel, and they don't get the whole picture. And everything you bring up to the table, it's like, those are your facts. Those are not my facts. They live, I believe, in an alternate reality. So, you know, in my work, uh, for Floriqua, I strive to focus on the issues that, you know, directly impact people's lives because um, I hear a lot of people saying, I don't believe in politics, especially among Latinos. Remember, my my specific area is Floriquas and Latins in Florida. Many come from countries where they have stopped believing in government. They are very cynical about government. So they they just tell you, I don't believe in politics. And I've encountered many who have said, you know, if I end up not voting for Trump, I still won't vote for Biden. So I won't vote at all. So, you know, when they say something like, I don't believe in politics, I, I always tell them, you know, this is akin to saying I don't believe in gravity. Politics affects every single aspect of your life. And that's what I strive to do with my reporting at Floriqua, to show people that politics does is real and does affect the quality of the air you breathe, the school your children attend, the taxes you pay, the quality of your health care. And that's, you know, what I think is missing right now, that people just don't see that they're very focused on, you know, I'm, I'm Republican, so I only listen to, you know, this type of news or I'm whatever, libertarian. They don't get the full picture. I don't know if um, how much stock I put in this because the uh, media doesn't always get things right, but I'm starting to read more and more about the possibility that um, in fairly large numbers, Hispanic men are saying that they're going to vote for Trump. Is that your sense in Florida? Sadly, yes. Why? Women as well. Women. Why? In Florida? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Um, You know, the shortest explanation is this. Florida is home to... Uh, you know, to a lot of people who escaped from communist regimes, from, you know, Cubans, Venezuelans. And the GOP has done a great job of convincing them that Democrats are socialists or communists. So I think Democrats, and I've spoken with, you know, with Nikki Free, the chair of the, you know, Democratic Party, with a lot of representatives, including, you know, Maxwell Frost, and they realize that they need to work more on debunking this 
you know, this myth. So, uh, I mean, uh, to be honest with you, I haven't seen much of that, but I'm hoping that as we get into 2024, you know, they'll, they'll address that because that is here in Florida, at least it's a huge part of it. Donald Trump, more so than most presidents in my lifetime, hates immigrants from anywhere, particularly brown people. And I think that what you're saying is accurate, but I've never been able to understand it. We had when Donald Trump was first elected, uh, my partner and I, uh, my partner had a good friend who was born in South America and, uh, you know, came to this country to work and was interestingly at that time in Florida. And Donald Trump was banning and preventing people from his home country from entering the United States. And he he was a strong Trump supporter. And we would say to him, don't you understand that you're part of the group he, and he that Donald Trump hates? And he'd be like, no, that's not me. That's them. That's not me. You know, I'm like I'm different. You know, I've already come to this country and and, you know, um, it's he's not it's not me. But it was him. And I don't understand how people can can get behind somebody who hates their brothers and sisters and somehow in their mind. Well, yeah, but it's not me. It's not me, Giselle. Absolutely. And I see that here all the time. And it's, you know, it's very disheartening because, you know, you see that, you know, in a lot of ways, I, some of these people are, are, are good people, but they're just completely misguided. They really have, you know, they really believe that Donald Trump is for America. When in fact, in fact, if you look at Donald Trump's uh, rhetoric, he sounds more like a dictator than anything. You know, I know. They, it's they like what they got away from and they want it again. Explain that to me. They think they think that Donald Trump is the possibly the strong man who will fight for them, who will protect them. See, may, a lot of them, I'm not saying all, uh, a number of them have this, this need to find, you know, the, you know, the strong man on their side because they really do not deep down believe in the democratic process. They believe it's tainted. Okay. So um, they take sides. Simple as that. And Donald Trump knows how to play them very well, sadly, you know, by, by appealing to, to their fear, to their fear. And they fail to, to see, and it, to me it's quite clear, that, that he's exactly what they ran away from. Right? A perfect example of what they ran away from. Couldn't be, you know, couldn't be a closer portrait. I just, I, I just hope that the Democrats start addressing this issue. I, I, I just, I mean, I've done it in, in my work. You know, I said, you know, this is how this person voted. Look how it affects you. Look how it, you know, takes rights away from you. I mean, supposedly Republicans are the party of small government and they're telling you what your kid can read. They're telling you, you know, what, you know, there's a law here that if you want to use a nickname in school, you need to ask permission from the parents. 
right? That is all about pronouns. It's just that if there's a transgender kid, he cannot say, call me, you know, she or, or he or whatever. So it, it's all designed to take, to strip freedoms from people, you know. Somehow, some of them see it as protections from the left, you know, LGBTQs are the left, you know. Uh. So, so, so it's, it's, it's uh, manipula- manipulation and, and some people buy into it. How do you at Courier Newsroom uh, approach your audience? Because obviously, you know, you and I both, <clears throat> we come from a very liberal sort of progressive place. And, and a lot of the people who read us or follow us on social media or listen to us are of the same mind. But, you know, you also want to bring into the fold or at least um, brush shoulders with people who have different points of view. How do you do that at uh, Floricua in uh, Florida? What I, what I, you know, try to do simply is to be as truthful as possible, as unbiased as possible by, by presenting facts as they are and, and, you know, appeal, always, always appealing, and this may sound a little harsh, but appealing to their self-interest. This is how this will affect your health care. This is how this will affect, you know, your child. Or, or you know, if you have uh, a gay child, this is how it will affect you. I mean, we had a, a law here saying that doctors are protected from treating anyone who they don't agree with morally. Now, imagine what that says. That is saying that if your gay child should, God forbid, you know, be involved in, a, in an accident and need immediate care and the doctor decides, you know what, you know, this person is trans or, or gay, I don't want to treat them, you know, your child could, could suffer or die. So I, I try to present the facts as they are, you know, and let the chips fall where they may. And, and also I, I try to present Stories of people that are going through things, you know. I think that what you just hit on there, I have found with my audience, you can talk policy and you can talk ideas. But when you humanize it and you can say, let me tell you the story of a woman from Chicago's South Side and what she and her family lived through, that's when it really resonates with people, I think. Um, we we really react emotionally, I think, to people's stories. And I think that kind of emotional reaction makes things, makes information, gets in a, get in a little deeper maybe than it otherwise would. Well, I, I've actually seen people and I've talked to people who have, you know, modified their thinking or changed their minds after listening to someone's story about seeing how these things are just not laws written down. I mean, they really affect people. They can ruin lives. So um, so I've actually had the good fortune to, <clears throat> to talk to some people who have said, you know, I'm thinking about this differently now. And um, that's all we can hope to do, you know, at this point. At this point. <clears throat> In 2024, how do you see Democrats... 
doing? I mean, we had that one victory. Was it was it a Jackson, Florida, that elected a Democratic yeah. mayor? And everybody was like, woo, hoo, hoo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> maybe yeah. it's the beginning. Maybe it's the beginning for Democrats. Do you think the Democratic Party has a decent infrastructure in Florida and that they can maybe make some inroads in the coming election? But again, looking to what you said before, right, emotions, the lady who won, she was a newscaster. She was in people's homes every day. They knew her. They liked her. So I think that had a lot to do with it. You know, people are used to uh, people are used to politicians coming out, frankly, when they need the vote. Right. Mm -hmm. They are not they are not familiar with them. Right. They just listen to their spiel, you know, once a year or whenever elections are coming up. And so I think Democrats need to humanize their message. I think personally, I think Democrats need to debunk a lot of myths, you know, and be more accessible to people. Right. Here in Florida, last I, last I heard, uh, we didn't even have, uh, you know, Democratic headquarters. Meanwhile, Republicans are signing up people to vote, you know, and helping them with their issues. So so that that works against us, I think. Hmm. Well, I'm glad you're there in Florida and um, fighting the good fight, Giselle. And if there's ever anything we up here in Chicago can do to help you, I sure hope you'll call. Thank you so very much. Likewise. It's been a pleasure. Oh, um, I'm going to invite you back because we need to keep an eye on Florida. We cannot let you uh, go off on your own without supervision. So we will be in touch. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so very much, Joan. Thank you. Giselle Belito is the political editor at Floricua. We are going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. You're the only voice of reason on the radio. You give me hope. Having listened to you every day. Thank you for your clear insight. Always felt a little bit smarter. I listen to you every single day. I keep coming back to this station, and thank you for what you do. On WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. Alexa, play WCPT. WCPT from TuneIn. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. WCPT 820. Well, barring a last-minute change, it appears that Mike Johnson, it appears that Mike Johnson is going to let the House of Representatives go home from the for the holidays. Um... Without passing aid to Ukraine, which uh, they know, according to the Office of Management and Budget, is going to expire at the end of December. They will not be back in session until January. Sadly, even though other people said that they thought Mike Johnson would do something, this is what I suspected he would do. He uh, is appealing to his far-right chaos, chaos caucus by doing this. And, um, and he's not getting himself into any kind of trouble. You know, there's not going to be round-the-clock negotiations to try to get this done. Um, he's not going to try to do anything on a bipartisan basis because that didn't turn out too well for Kevin McCarthy. You know, he's just going to duck it all. At least that's how it appears right now.
And um, both the Congress and the Republicans in the Senate have said that before they vote on more money for Taiwan or Israel or Ukraine, they want to make sure that their demands on uh, immigration are all met. One Republican senator admitting that they were holding up aid to Ukraine because it's the only bargaining chip they've got to try to get what they want at the border. So an entire country's effort to push back an invader is a political bargaining chip so that Republicans can get more of what they want uh, enacted at the border. So, it, you know, there's a whole long list of things that they want. But we're going to discuss at least um, the biggest of their asks. Uh, joining us in this discussion is Kate Lincoln Goldfinch, who's a Texas immigration attorney and who has been paying very close attention to what is going on at the national level. Kate, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate you taking the time. I've been making reference to all of these Republican demands, but I have not yet spent a decent amount of time on my show going going through them. So um, let's talk about the big six, okay? Uh, the big six uh, proposals. First, first up, unilateral, so-called safe third country transit vans. Kate, I'm not even sure I know what that means. So typically, these these rear their heads, you know, periodically, and the safe third country transit vans are the idea that asylum seekers who pass through other countries on their way to the United States should just apply for asylum in those countries, and that if they haven't done that by the time they get to the U.S. border, then they will just summarily be denied or disqualified from asylum in the United States. Um, those have been, you know, discredited recently because they've been passed mostly. For example, Trump tried to pass this through executive action, and it wasn't an act of Congress. Now, if Congress were to pass something like this, it would be, you know, legislation that would probably be permitted by the courts. But practically, it would be devastating. Um, in my experience working with asylum seekers, uh, because most asylum seekers who flee, you know, Honduras, for example, find themselves also unsafe in countries like Mexico um, or people from Venezuela are not safe in countries like Central America. Um, so well, this yeah, idea that I mean, if you're leaving Venezuela because of the you, your family is unsafe because of the regime there. How many countries are you going to pass through if you're, um, if you're coming to the United States and you have to apply for asylum in each and every one of those countries? Right. It's absurd. And it, it, these people, you know, asylum seekers aren't safe in the countries that they pass through. And it, it, it does, it, I mean, there aren't asylum procedures in many other countries. There aren't protections for refugees. I mean, we see it alone in Mexico, even though Mexico does have its own asylum system. People who live, who are refugees in Mexico are uh, very vulnerable. I've worked with a lot of migrants who are, you know, 
living along the border, and they are routinely subjected to kidnapping by cartels. I mean, I work with an organization that does a lot of border work, and we did a study um, one summer of all the people that we worked with that summer, and almost 50% of them had been subjected to kidnapping or attempted kidnapping during their time along the border. Is this for kidnapping for ransom because they think these people have money? Well, they don't have money themselves, but they are, most of them are coming to, you know, a friend or a family member in the United States. Many, if not most, know someone here. And so what they'll do is they'll kidnap them, take their phones, if they have a phone, call the person, you know, the most frequent contact on the phone, and they'll say, we have your cousin or your daughter, and it's, you know, usually about $5,000 a person. Good grief. Uh, and and then all sorts of violence occurs during the kidnappings as well. And this is just a long, you know, the U.S.-Mexico border, this is in Mexico. But I can tell you anecdotally, I've talked to enough people who have gone through this, you know, story of migration that one of the most dangerous parts of their story, um, you know, separate from what they fled, is the passageway to the United States um, and, the, and the danger that they face on their way here. It's really unsafe. And it just, it also is in violation of, you know, what we've agreed to as a nation. I mean, this whole idea of asylum arose after World War II when we, you know, we had this international reckoning after the failure to protect refugees who were fleeing the Holocaust. And we said, you know what, as a country, We will commit to protect people who are eligible. Not everybody's eligible just because they're afraid, but if they've suffered persecution based on a protected ground, like their race, their religion, their nationality, their political opinion, or their membership in a particular social group, then we'll offer them this protection. And we've we've had this as part of our laws for 70 years now. And what... You know, we see in Congress and what we see in these conservative politics is let's backpedal. Let's revoke that protection that we've committed to offering and, and frankly, you know, change who we are as a nation, which is um, disappointing. It's sad. It's not humanitarian. It's not dignified. But also, I'll always talk about this. It's bad for our nation because we are in a point of time where we need immigrants more than we ever have before. We needed immigrants a lot in the mid-1800s when we were closing the railroad and doing all that stuff. And we're in another time like that, where we have such a high need for immigration and, and policies that don't support that and rhetoric that doesn't support that. So any of these moves to limit immigration are hurting everyone at the end of the day. Why is it, Kate, that that message doesn't get out? Um, people have this sense that somehow immigrants are uh, just, t- they're taxing the system. They demand too many social services, too much medical care. They're taking jobs away from people. Don't you understand that, Kate? <laughs> no, I mean, that has been the refrain sort of all throughout the ages and from, you know, I've, I've asked this question a lot. I mean, because it's when you present someone who's afraid, let's say of immigrants overrunning or taking, et cetera, and you present facts about how it's not true and it doesn't work. These are not, these are not the conversations in my experience that where people think, Oh, okay, what you're saying makes sense. And maybe I'll change my tune. In fact, I'm thinking of a presentation I gave 
a couple of weeks ago, it was to a group of Republicans, um, retired Republican men in West Austin. And I did a whole, you know, hour-long presentation with data and facts and studies and graphs and pie charts and, you know, data, because I know that the stories don't really move the needle at all for certain groups of people. And at the end of that presentation, I still had, you know, grown men shouting and yelling at me. Um, just like yelling so at you angry. Like you're lying? Oh, that... No, that, you know, still that they're illegals and they're not, you know, following the laws and, you know, just like repeating the same sort of rhetoric, even though I had just spent this whole length of time explaining why that approach is not right. And then it does, it's like it falls on deaf ears. That's my experience. It just falls on deaf ears and they just throw it back at you the same thing. And I experience this on social media too because I do a lot of, you know, videos and updates about this stuff. And the comments that I get are constantly just repeated, you know, why don't they follow the law? They're illegal. Yes. And it's like, you know, what can I say? What can one say? to get across to people like that. And I, I, that I don't know the answer to, but I'm convinced at this point that really what's motivating these talking points is fear. I mean, people are afraid. They're afraid of change. They're tribal. You know, I mean, there's this quote from Benjamin Franklin in, you know, 17-something, 1770s, let's say. In this quote, he says, the Germans, why should we, you know, the Anglos, be suffered to have the Germans swarm and into our settlement, then they're never going to acquire our complexion or our language, and they're going to Germanize us instead of our Anglifying them. And it was like, what I love about this quote is that it just lays it all right out there on the line. Mm-hmm. Like, this is what is driving it. But this is a, you know, a white English man talking about, you know, white German men. Um, and, but it's the same, it's the same sentiment. It's the same words of today. And so ultimately, I think that's what people are afraid of, that we're, it's going to be different. Things are going to change. And you know what? That's true. Uh, no matter what, that's just the way of the universe. Things change. Um, I would like to go on, but there are, I want to try to get to more of these, more of these points. So, um, Again, most of these uh, points that the Republicans are making, I need to have you explain them to me. Uh, for instance, elimination of nearly all immigration parole authority. What does that mean, Kate? So what can happen when, um, you know, we've got broken laws is that the president has the authority to issue parole programs. And so examples of this are, you know, when the war broke out in Afghanistan, um, we had a parole program to, it's a humanitarian parole to, to help the people who have assisted U.S. military for the last two decades from Afghanistan to get paroled into the United States. Now, in actuality, very few people actually got granted parole um, under that program. But then similarly, when the war broke out in Ukraine, we had a parole program for people of Ukraine to, to get processed into the United States. And then when, um, you know, the asylum sort of laws continue to be very backlogged along the southern border, Biden announced a parole program for people from Venezuela, Cuba, Haiti, and Nicaragua. So there's, it's these limited programs where the president can, uh, you know, 
allow certain people to come in to the country. And, you know, I have mixed feelings about these programs. They're Band-Aids for only certain people. Um, and the mixed feelings I have is that the, the existence of a parole program is an indication of the underlying system not functioning and being broken because we wouldn't need it mm-hmm. if, uh, you know, if the asylum process or the refugee process were fully operational because people could become refugees or asylees instead. Um, and so it's, it's, it's not as if I'm, you know, pro-parole um, myself, but the revocation of these parole programs is an indication that what they're asking for is, you know, no asylum, no special programs, the end of anything like that. Mm-hmm. Well, and when you look at what they're asking for and, you know, look at the whole uh, group of requests together, it's clear. Uh, anybody who's here who hasn't already gone through the system, we send back. Uh, we don't let anybody in on uh, any kind of grounds whatsoever. I mean, it's, it's to, to say the least, it's draconian. And yet I read one conservative columnist who said that aid for Ukraine is so important that President Biden should simply give them everything they want. And if some of it turns out to be not workable, then, you know, you can go ahead and repair it after the fact. What do you think about that idea? Okay, can you repeat, say that again? I'm not sure I follow. A conservative columnist, Jonathan Last, who I read pretty much every day, suggested that President Biden, because aid for Ukraine is so important, President Biden should simply acquiesce to every Republican demand on the border, get the aid done, and if afterwards we find that some of these proposals that we've agreed to are uh, draconian or unworkable, then we can fix them later. Well, I'm sure everybody who's ever negotiated anything would love that to be the way that the negotiation works out. Like, you know, if you have any problems with what I'm suggesting, why don't you just go ahead and agree? And then after the fact, after we've signed on the dotted line, if you don't like it, maybe we'll discuss a change. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just that's not the way this works. If you're demanding something, then we need to have a conversation about how this is going to play out before the agreement is made. So that's just that's backwards negotiating um, in my mind. And of course, if if there are policy changes on the table that are going to impact border policy, we need to thoughtful, hopefully, I would expect that they are thoughtfully considered before an agreement is made. Well, let's take a look at one of the points, mass expansion of expedited removal to everyone. Um, that doesn't seem very workable. No, and this is this is one that's really terrifying when you look at Trump's proposed border, you know, immigration policy. So, um, the mass exp- so expedited removal is a law that was passed in the late '90s, and it says that the Department of Homeland Security can summarily deport anyone in the country who's been here for less than two years. So theoretically, this law could be applied so that anyone in anywhere in the United States can just be picked up and deported. And the difference is there's no court hearing. There's no right to go before an immigration judge. You know, all of the sort of due process rights of a person are revoked under this expedited removal. But the way that it's been implemented so far for the last two decades is 
only along the border, only within 100 miles of the border. And so it has been used pretty, you know, regularly against people who are apprehended crossing. They get expeditedly removed, it's called. They just get deported and they don't go before a judge. And that is what allows Border Patrol authorities to catch people and send them back quickly. It's one of the one of the mechanisms that they do that under. Well, under the Trump administration, he said, we're going to expand this to the two years, but it never really, he said it, but it never really happened. Now he's announced, and obviously under this, you know, agreement, they're wanting it to occur, that we'll set up encampments, like detention camps around the country and go around and apprehend and round up undocumented people who are living, you know, in the interior of the United States and summarily deport them without any due process rights. And so you can imagine this is going to catch people who have been in the country, who have had children born in the country, who are married, who have jobs, who maybe have purchased homes, because the way that the law is written, it's anybody can be picked up and it's up to them to prove to the officer in that moment that they have more than two years in the country. And if they can't, well, they don't qualify for any due process rights. And so when in the Trump administration, I remember we would, you know, go around giving presentations to the immigrant community and say everybody needs at all times to carry all their documentation that proves they've been in the country for longer than two years, like your kids' vaccination records and, you know, your medical history and all your contracts and everything. So you have this packet of papers just in case you get picked up. And so it's terrifying um, that they might do that again. And it would be, you know, again, it's like there's the humanitarian angle, which, of course, matters to many of us. And then there's let's just talk about like the economic impact of a program like this would be so, so harmful to terrify immigrants like this throughout the nation um, because we need immigrants in this country and we need them to feel safe and to feel like they can work. Well, that's been a big uh, consideration here in Chicago, because when Greg Abbott uh, bust a bunch of Venezuelans here, um, we took in 30,000 Ukrainians and nobody batted an eye because there's a huge Ukrainian community. There was infrastructure. They were welcomed. They were set up with places to live and jobs. But the Venezuelans didn't have that kind of infrastructure. So they ended up at, you know, at shelters and at police stations and on tents on the sidewalk. And there was, you know, people started complaining. Well, you know, they're getting into trouble and they're selling drugs and they're and they're selling sex. Well, you know what? We're if you don't permit them to get a job, what do you think's going to happen? You know, um, how yeah. do you think that's going to work out? And uh, the fact that President Biden was pressured into um, creating some work possibilities for these Venezuelans has been has been crucial, though. I did speak yesterday to uh, um, one of the people who's been very involved in immigration, uh, a Reverend Beth Brown. And she said that despite all of the possibilities for help that exist, she said it takes months to get through the paperwork. You know, um, you know, to try to get the, the, the proper documentation to get a job, to, to try to get the support, uh, for rent so that you can rent a low income apartment and know that you've got at least six months rent and, you know, coming your way. You know, she said that this is, it's a very slow process. And, you know, it, d- would the process move faster 
if we had more immigration judges, if there were more immigration courts? Is that one of the answers to moving this problem along, Kate? Sure. Yeah, it is. I mean, the immigration court system is really backlogged, right? But the, that applies to people who are apprehended and to people who are in the asylum process. And so one way to reduce the backlog is to have enforcement priorities, which we saw under Obama. And they say, you know, if someone is not a priority for us, we're not going to keep them in the deportation machine. So unless they have gang-related, you know, affiliations or they have criminal history or recent immigration violations, we're going to just exempt them and take them out of the immigration court system. And that reduces the number of cases. So that's one you know, lever that could be pulled relatively easily. We could also pull the lever of adding immigration judges and all of that. But frankly, the best lever to pull would be the one where we create a comprehensive immigration reform that says, okay, for the undocumented people that are in the country, let's create a system where people can register, pay fines, you know, prove that they don't have criminal history, get work permission, come out of the shadows. I mean, and that is so obviously a solution that benefits everybody. You know, you don't have this, you know, hidden population in the country. For the people who are, you know, law enforcement safety-minded, it it seems to make complete sense, right, that we would allow for them to come out of the shadows. Um, And then also to create a system where more people can come to the United States just to work so that the asylum system isn't one of the only ways for people to do it. But our system, but our laws haven't been updated for over four decades. And so we don't have enough employment visas. We don't have enough um, family-based visas. We don't have enough temporary work visas. Asylum is a total mess. And so even though we need all of this immigration, there's no legal way for people to do it. And so people who do come here because they want a better life for themselves, they want to work and they want to contribute, are vilified by certain, you know, anti-immigrant people rhetoric, Um, even though we have this crazy system where it's like we have all these jobs, we have this need for immigration, and so we're sort of like waving them over, you know, but also not creating a legal system that allows them to do it the right way. So it's just really stupid. I mean, it's just a, <laughs> such a stupid system, you know? And so the the solution to, is so clear. And the, the very first thing we have to do is stop believing that immigration is a dirty word. Yeah. And so all of this rhetoric that comes out about this stuff that people just buy it hook, line, and sinker because they're tribal, because they're afraid of change, um, is what's hampering progress for everybody. Yeah, and also, too, you know, even though uh, we hated the Irish and we hated the Germans and we hated the Italians as they came in, at least they kind of looked like the people who were already here. So even though there was a great deal of hate to be overcome, they they were sort of blended in. But now we st- we have all that hate, plus people tend to be darker skinned, so they really stand out. So they, we have two reasons to hate them. Um, yeah. I think that a lot of this is, you know, especially old white men who see their day um, coming to an end. And that's not going to stop just because they're mad about it. 
Right. Well, you know, you said the question about why the room full of old white men was so rabidly mm-hmm. <laughs> angry at me, you know, that's exactly what it is. It's they feel they feel the change and it is it is a foot whether or not, you know, we're pro immigrant. <laughs> it's just yep. the way of the world. It sure is. Kate, thank you so much for uh, joining us and, and talking about some of these um it, it appears the White House has really got its work cut out for it. I don't know how they're going to get aid for Israel and Taiwan and Ukraine. I just hope they can figure it out. Thank you so much. Yeah. Kate Lincoln Goldfinch Finch is a Texas immigration attorney and uh, joins us so she can educate me on uh, all these issues as they come up. And I appreciate that. We are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this. Take Jonas Pazito live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 AM, WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Recently, New York turned on their first offshore wind farm. Uh, Right now, um, it is ramping up, but eventually it's going to power 70,000 homes. And New York has also recently given out three new offshore wind contracts to companies. And when those are online, they're guesstimating that they'll power more than two million homes. Um, And uh, also um, $15 billion in the process of building and maintaining that in uh, New York spending. Uh, New York has gotten help from the Biden administration, and uh, here in Illinois, some of our legislators want Illinois to also start moving forward with um, with wind projects, possibly even in Lake Michigan. State Senator Robert Peters from uh, Illinois' 13th district is here to talk about efforts uh, to bring this kind of energy to Illinois. Senator Peters, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So, um, what kind of help did New York get from the Biden administration, and can we get it too? Yes. So, I mean, there's federal funds. Um, you know, the Biden administration uh, was active in broad fiscal policy, particularly uh, around renewable energy projects, uh, from executive orders to uh, the passing of the IRA, the IRA and um we have a unique opportunity in this country to really transition our grid uh, and New York has taken advantage of it. And my hope is um, that Illinois, that we do land-based wind, we do solar and we get to offshore wind uh, and we do it in a way that is equitable to working class communities on the South side of Chicago. One of the um, concerns that I've had 
uh, is that, you know, a lot of people complain that uh, wind power, wind generating turbines as they exist now, for the most part, have these big blades. And there's often a lot of uh, birds that are killed by them. But I've been reading about new designs in wind turbines. And one of the newest designs is just these big posts, they have no turbines at all. They don't have any blades. There's nothing spinning. It's just like they look like giant baseball bats stuck in the ground. If we did do something in Lake Michigan, would there be, could there be a guarantee that it will be something that doesn't wreak havoc on our bird population? Yeah, I mean, no matter what, even with the current technology and even with newer technology, uh, it's not like a, a massive uh, bird hindrance. In fact, uh, it's been shown that birds tend to avoid uh, wind turbines. That's something that has been seen and studied, and that's a, a practice. Uh, some One part evolved, one part uh, just how it's been, whether it's land-based or even if it's um, offshore. So this is not anything that's going to get in the way of our migrating bird population, and I would make the argument uh, that keeping lights on in buildings during high migration periods is a bigger threat and a greater threat uh, than developing wind energy. So this is really an opportunity for us uh, to really transition our grid and to bring strong, equitable jobs, and particularly to focus on areas that have been hardest hit by disinvestment, hardest hit by uh, environmental uh, degradation, uh, to be able to be part of something that is truly, truly transformational. But but how do you do that? How do you make sure that underserved areas get the benefits and get the jobs? Yeah, so, there's, you know, for us, you know, the way we're proposing this is to make sure uh, that equity is front and center. It plays the leading role uh, in how we are able to grade these projects uh, in scoring these projects and these proposals. Uh, you focus on the fact that in Illinois and particularly in Chicago, we have a port, you know, in a working class black and brown community, the Illinois uh, port district, uh, the Chicago port district uh, down in um, the southeast side of Chicago. So that is a place that is a hub uh, to really move and uh, and put together uh, these pieces that uh, make up uh, offshore wind turbines. And then you have to think about, you know, when it comes to that equity piece, that the jobs are really focused on people who are in roughly areas of disproportional and disproportionate impact. Um, so areas that have been the hardest hit being the front and center uh, for both the jobs, being front and center for both the development being front and center in terms of this transformation. And, of course, we want to make sure that everybody's able to benefit from this, but we want, to, we want to target as much as possible our working class communities. This is why what we call this, um, what we're proposing this as, is Rust Belt to Green Belt. That for the longest time, we have seen Rust Belt communities hit by uh, massive disinvestment, massive jobs moved out of the community. And we say, okay, well, if we're going to take, we're going to be part of this green energy revolution. If we're going to say this, if we're going to do this, we're going to commit to it, then we need to make sure areas that were hardest hit are front and center. And that is what we would do. Uh, that's what I want to see done uh, with this project. Have you spoken uh, in community meetings or whatever to um groups and the people who live in these areas, because oftentimes um, 
there is some resistance to some kinds of new developments because especially people in low income areas, they sort of feel like uh, their neighborhoods are going to be taken advantage of or um, groups that are not helping the community or worse yet, even polluting the uh, community will be moved into those areas somehow because uh, they are. I don't know, less able to protest that kind of thing. Has the community signed off on this? Are they eagerly behind it or where does it stand? Yeah, I mean, we have a good chunk of community support, you know, obviously from the Sierra Club uh, to um, uh, black led and brown led organizations. What I will say is there is an understanding. There are people who have doubts. I don't think necessarily skepticism. They don't see this project as like, you know, it's not. This is the this is the opposite of a general iron, right? It's not a metal shredder mm-hmm. for renewable clean energy. But I think it's the fact that people have an understood skepticism when people make promises of development. Um, this is why when we score these projects, um, we made sure in the framework that equity is front and center because we need to make sure that it is clear that the community is going to get a benefit from this, right? That the community is going to actually see these come to people who live there now and have lived there for generations. On top of that, organizations have to really deeply build relationships with, I mean, not organizations, developers have to build deep relationships with organizations. That's something that has to happen. We know, especially in Chicago, that you can promise and say you're going to do a whole bunch of things, whether it's on the southeast side, whether it's downtown, whether it's on you know the, the lakefront by uh, Soldier Field or it's in Lincoln Yards, that if you don't work with the community, these things don't move. Exactly. Uh, and so, and, you know, that's a credit to us as Chicagoans, right, that what we want when we, we, we want development, but we want to make sure there's a few things that happen that actually benefits us, that it's done in a fair and equitable manner, and that it has long-term sustain, it sustains for a while. And so, we, you know, we don't want to have a white elephant. We, you know, this is not going to be uh, like a spire, you know, that, you know, happened years ago. I don't know if people remember after the Great Recession. This is one that's going to produce, you know, energy for us as a state. It's one that's going to is making sure that it has in its scoring equity front and center and that if a developer is going to do anything, they're going to have to work with the community in the southeast side. Let me tell you something. It's one of the most organized and most potent organized communities there are in the city of Chicago. I've known organizers down there. I remember talking to organizers down there. I care deeply about making sure that they get what they deserve. Yeah. Um, Senator Peters, we need to take a break. I'm talking to State Senator Robert Peters, Illinois' 13th District, and we are talking about this Rust Belt to Green Belt Act. We'll be back with more after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm joined by State Senator Robert Peters, who represents Illinois' 13th District. We are talking about... 
of the Rust Belt to Green Belt Act. Senator Peters, I know that there have been a number of sponsors. Where does this act stand in Springfield right now? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, we've had great progress in the House with overwhelming support, bipartisan support. Um, the Illinois Power Agency is conducting a study on offshore wind and, and battery storage, uh, particularly to dispel any misinformation that's been going around. And uh, my hope is that we're able to see this report, um, you know, in the spring, in the early spring. Uh, you know, once we get that report back, uh, we'll have a better understanding of what's the, the best next steps to take. Uh, we've had subject matter hearings where we've gone into great detail with offshore wind and how it works in other other places uh, and the benefits it will have in, in Illinois. And uh, my hope is in the next session that we can get this done because, look, you know, I, we're, we're seeing we're seeing these sort of green energy projects move. And I get it, you know, in our rural communities, uh, in suburban communities. Um, but I think in our working class communities in the city of Chicago, we deserve to see these benefits, too. So, um when would you envision that this would potentially get passed and go to the governor's desk? You know, I think, you know, if we can get this done in the spring, then we move it through the spring. And then, um, you know, of course, I would prefer that he uh, uh, sign it immediately. But, of course, we'll wait and he signs it in the summer and uh, then it starts the clock to help get us um, get this moving. And, you know, New York already has uh, a wind farm that they've uh, erected. If we, if we do get it signed this coming t- summer of 2024, um, when will we see this? Uh, I mean, I assume it doesn't get built overnight. So are we talking um, after the bill is signed a year, maybe? Or is that, uh, is that too hopeful? I think the idea is that you a year is the process it will take to get the contracts and the evaluation done. Um, you know, and I think that there will continue to be ongoing conversations about that. But it's not going to happen with the snap of the finger. Um, mm-hmm. There's a whole lot of things that have to go into place. You have to have a bidding process, right? You need to open it up for people to, to bid on these projects. Uh, you need to have evaluations. Um, then you go from that point and then you first then have to lay the groundwork. Um, so you're not going to just pop a turbine into the lake, like, you know, willy nilly. Um, there has to be a whole bunch of uh, evaluations about where they're going to be placed, how they're going to be placed, uh, making sure that you get the port um, up to speed uh, or the location that you're going to be, uh, you know, basically harboring uh, much of the, um, much of the infrastructure. So there's a lot of things that have to go into place. As you're ramping up and then in a relatively few years, uh, you should start being able to see these projects uh, come to life. Um, And, you know, I've seen, um, you know, there's a working class community in the U.K. called Grimsby, Grimsby Town, uh, right near the city of Hull. Um, these are two extremely working class communities. They've experienced massive disinvestment, deindustrialization. And what they focus on as transitioning their communities is in renewable offshore wind projects. And to the point where Hall, one of the larger cities, a very historical city, a very historical industrial city in the UK, 
uh, was once named a Euro World City uh, because of its uh, economic transformation. And so in our you know little part of the world, in our little part of town of Chicago on the southeast side, um, we should be able to see those benefits, too. And it, that takes some time, uh, but it's intentional time and, and one that's rooted in making sure that we you know do right by people there and we do right by uh, the community in Illinois. People tend to be very protective of uh, natural resources in Illinois. Are you worried that if one of part of this project is putting some kind of wind turbine or wind collection power generating uh, equipment in the lake, that that potentially could be tied up in litigation for a very long time? No, I mean, well, I, I will say. Uh, considering my history, you know, I, I tend to work on things that are transformative. And there's a lot of people who, you know, want to take us back to the 1950s. So, I, you know, I can't I can't speak on, on that. But I what I can say is, no, I think that and my hope is that people realize how important this is, uh, that we can do this right. Uh, and look, let's let's be honest. The, the greatest threat to Lake Michigan are the people who've been flooding chemicals uh, you know, just over the border into our lake. Uh, building these turbines is not going to be a threat to our infrastructure. Um, you know, let's remember it, it. It was someone somewhere else who dropped zebra mussels into our shores. Uh, that was not us. We're going to be very careful and intentional around this whole process. Hmm. But realistically, the sort of um, program you're laying out, I mean, it's, it's years away. How did New York get ahead of us? I mean, I think that's honestly New York was just ambitious. I mean, they did it. Uh, they moved on it. I mean, that's I mean that's the best way to put it. Um, <laughs> we are Illinois. Let, let's just let's make this clear. CJA, um, the Clean and Equitable Jobs Act, is a huge, monumental success uh, and, and and move in the right direction for where we need to go. This builds on top of that. Uh, and so I, I would say it's, it's two ways to do this. New York needs a CJA, and we need New York's offshore wind program. Mm-hmm. One of the things you mentioned earlier was in um, evaluating, you know, where to put this kind of technology and who to hire to build it. There was going to be um, your committees looking into that, and there was going to be a scoring process what are some of the items that you envision that will be part of the scoring process? What are we going to be looking at there? Yeah, I mean, I think I really to sort of pin on it. Like, obviously, you're going to look at, uh, you know, the project in terms of the energy produced and, and, and all those things uh, in terms of the technical of the work. But the equity component is really going to be heavily focused on how you're going to approach the disproportionately impacted communities or disproportionately impacted areas around the project. What is your plan there? What is your approach to the community? How are you going to make sure the community benefits from that? Those are all going to be part of that scoring. So it's not simply just that you're going to go and build a development and call it a day, but how are you going to de- build that development? How are you going to make sure that you bring people along with you and build that development? And how are you going to make sure that has long-term lasting effects to help the community as you build, as that development goes, you know, goes live and, 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 and comes to fruition. That, that is an important part of this scoring project. And, you know, and, and look, I think, you know, this is, this is a, you know, a little different. 
Um, but it's also a different type of project. I mean, to give you an idea, it's this coalition is something I don't think most people see in the state right now. It's labor and environmental groups working together on a project. I mean, just to give you an idea of, you know, what that means, it's a rare thing right now in this state. Um, and it's a way to bring these two movements, the labor movement and the environmental justice movement and the uh, you know, the racial justice movements together. Um, and that's what makes this project unique. So when you say benefit the community, are you talking about hiring companies to do this work who are willing to um, make donations to projects like affordable housing? Or are you talking about making sure some of the companies hired for this work maybe create a training program so that people who actually live in the neighborhood can be trained, you know, how to do these installations or how to do the maintenance? Yeah, so we want to make sure that we have solid training and that these jobs can go to people who live in the area, right? We also want to make sure that if you're going to bid on this, that you have a plan that involves the community. I can't, I, look, my, my idea is obviously the strongest you could do to give the community a community benefits agreement. That is my ideal. So it is on the people who bid for this. Right. They have to come up with a plan to come up with one that gives the community what it what it needs. I, I, I'm, you know, I have my idea, which is obviously in the CBA space, but it's on the developer to do that because that's going to be part of the scoring of this project. So if it means making sure the resources going to the working class community down there, not just jobs, but making sure they're solid invest in the community, so be it. But that's something that needs to happen. And uh, that's something that will be part of the overall bidding process. Who's going to be making these decisions? Well, so we have um, so we have one part. The Illinois Power Agency is going to be doing some of the procurement uh, and playing a huge role in the procurement piece. Uh, you know, we have, I believe, DCO is going to be playing a role in this. I mean, it's going to be really heavily relying on the administration. But it's important to remember that we have um, – how do I put this? A, a, frame, a framework, and that framework is going to be, um, you know, built around how the scoring process, right? That's the box that people need to work into. This is um, this is something that I think that is past due. I'm sorry, Illinois waited so long um, to, you know, start this process, but at least it is currently something that is moving along. Now, I know that there are, in addition to various legislators, there's also a lot of different groups, union groups, Sierra Club, that support these kinds of, of efforts. Is this a bipartisan effort or is this strictly the Dems down in Springfield doing this? Look, in the House, this got bipartisan support. Uh, my hope is that we get bipartisan support in the in, in the Senate. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not here to make predictions about what the vote count will be. I'll be honest with you. I just want to get this done. <laughs> I want to get this moving. You know, I've worked on a lot of things. You know, I've, I've played a role in changing our public safety space so that free trial is not determined by how much money you have in your pocket, but it's based off of safety. You know, I've worked uh, to decriminalize HIV. I've worked uh, to bring uh, millions of dollars to violent intervention. Uh, this is, uh, you know, I've worked to provide temp workers 
uh, with equal pay for equal work. And I have to tell you, this is like up there and one of the biggest fights and longest fights I've had. And my hope is that next year is the year we make it happen. Okay. Uh, you say it's one of the biggest fights you've had. Who's going to say, oh, you know, um, Senator Peters, oh, this is this is a really bad idea. You know, we should keep burning fossil fuels. We need to build more coal plants. Uh, why on earth would somebody be opposed to this? Well, I mean, I think that's it. I mean, I think it's the fact that you ha- people need to expand um how we're going to do this, how we're going to get energy, because climate change is very real. We have to take every step we can to combat it. And we need to make sure we do it in the most equitable way possible. But what I do know is, you know, we just had a, you know, a former president who's running again, uh, who throws out more myths about what happens with wind. I'm talking about Donald Trump. Uh, and we live in a world where... I believe it causes you know, cancer like him, or something, doesn't it? Isn't that what he yeah, said? Yeah, he's, yeah he, wind turbines he cause cancer. cancer. What he really is saying is that he has a nice golf course. And he <laughs> he's, being, he's being, you know, unfair and unright, and he's, he's being selfish. So uh, if we can avoid the Trumpian stuff there and we can just get this done, I think, I think it's something that's real possible. Well, I uh, certainly hope so. Is there anything uh, that my listeners can do? Do you need us to fill out witness slips? Do we need to make calls? What can we do to make this um, a reality? Yes, please call your legislator, uh, particularly your senator, and tell them that you support this project, uh, that you want to see this get done. Uh, you know, you, you can call them, tweet at them, or whatever we're calling that now. Get on Facebook. <laughs> let them know. Uh, that we need to get this project done. And then uh, as we're moving this in Springfield, we'd love to have support, witness slips, uh, and more phone calls to help us make this happen. Well, I see my state rep, Robin Gable, uh, already is uh, one of the supporters that's signed on to the Rust Belt to Green Belt pilot project. So, um, and you know, is there some place if my listeners want to want to know who's supporting this? Is there a, a link or anything that they can find out this information from? There is. I need to make sure I don't butcher the website name. I think it's. It's. I believe it's Rust Belt. Uh, to greenbelt.com, but let me make sure. But otherwise, um, just uh, look at the website maybe for your state rep or your state senator, as if they are, um, if they're mentioning this, right. they're probably a supporter. That's right. That is right. Um, well, thank uh, you for, yeah, exactly. This is fantastic. Uh, thank you for joining us and uh, talking about this. Uh, hopefully, not too many months down the road, we can have a conversation and you can tell us how it all passed and where we stand at that moment in time. Of course. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you to your listeners. And uh, hopefully we can make this happen. Yeah. State Senator Robert Peters represents Illinois' 13th district. We are now going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. Remember when you get to work to hop over to WCPT820.com or the TuneIn Radio app and stream The Stephanie Miller Show weekdays 8 to 11 a.m. on Chicago's Progressive Talk, where facts matter. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT820. 
Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. On WCPT 820. I am joined by DePaul journalist-in-residence Chris Bury, who is a longtime network news guy. And uh, joins us usually right after there's been an election to provide analysis for us. But uh, the year is coming to a close and uh, there's no election slated anytime soon. And I couldn't let 2023 end without a conversation with my friend Chris Bury. How are you, Chris? Hey, Joan. Great to be with you. But there is an election coming up in less than five weeks. And that's the... Iowa Republican caucuses. So yeah, but that's 2024. That's That's 20. That's that's 2024. I can't even wrap my head around that yet. Um, Though, you know, today, uh, since you brought it up for the first time today, I uh, saw some reporting that seemed to at least open the door to the possibility that Donald Trump might not do as well in Iowa as everyone has been expecting for a very long time. I don't know if you saw any of that, that um, he's apparently even Donald Trump has started making comments on his social media like, "Okay, Iowa, like, you know, you got to really, you know, you got to really get behind me and you got to really, you know, show that uh, I'm your guy, which I thought was kind of weird, uh, since everybody seems to be uh, under the impression that he's going to crush it in Iowa. Are there cracks, do you think, in that support? Well, it is fair to say that Iowa is notorious for changing its mind late in the game. So we have about, you know, just about five weeks. The caucus is on January 15th. Um, so things could change. That said, um, the latest poll, which is a respected poll from the Des Moines Register in combination with NBC News, has Trump actually expanding his lead. Um, in that latest poll, he stands at 51%, and the closest competitor far behind is Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley in third with about 16%, and way back in the pack um, is Vivek Ramaswamy, um, who only garners about 5%. So there's plenty of time left. I think, you know, realistically, it looks like the, the, the news story is going to be who comes in second. You know, <laughs> is it going to be Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley? But what does that mean? Because if Trump is eventually the nominee, he is going to, you know, he has said he learned his lesson with Mike Pence. He doesn't want to balance the ticket. He doesn't, you know, worry about uh, pairing up with somebody who's going to bring voters he might not otherwise attract. He wants loyalty. First, second, third, and fourth qualities he's looking for are blind loyalty to Donald Trump. And I certainly not DeSantis. And I wouldn't think Nikki Haley either. 
I, I don't think so. Certainly not DeSantis. Uh, Nikki Haley has tried to put a little daylight between her campaign and uh, Trump's campaign. Um, she has been somewhat critical. Um, so she probably has also been crossed off Trump's list. Now, of course, there is uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who is not going to be much of a factor, uh, but he has been uh, slavishly uh, loyal to to Trump. So I guess, you know, among those who are still left in the race, he would be um, a possibility. Um, but, you know, this is only going to be Iowa. And then we're, you know, we move on to, um, uh, to New Hampshire and, and South Carolina. And we will have criminal cases that are going to be overlapping all of this. But it is, you know, somewhat astounding to me uh, that despite all of the, you know, the 91 criminal counts against the former president, that, you know, as of right now, and again, a, a poll is only a snapshot. I don't want to read too much into it. But as of right now, you have more than half of the likely Republican uh, attendees of the caucus in January, more than half, uh, saying that their first choice candidate is Donald J. Trump. Which um, gives me pause. You mentioned Ramaswamy just this morning. CNN puts out a newsletter. It, you know how Brian uh, Stelter used to report on the media? Well, they've got a newsletter, even though they fired him. They've got a newsletter that comes out every day. And the guy who <laughs> writes the newsletter was kind of writing like, uh, now, why again are we doing this town hall with Ramaswamy? What, what is CNN? What do we think we're going to get out of this? And this is a guy who has seemingly dropped deeper and deeper into the QAnon conspiracy theory hole. And what are we doing here? And then the only answer that I've seen is like sort of like, well, you know, we did town halls with everybody else, so I guess we have to do this one. Thoughts on that, Chris? Yes, I mean, it, it does seem odd. Ramaswamy um, is not gaining any traction uh, in the polls. Uh, in the last debate, um, he was, you know, roundly attacked by everybody on stage and came across, uh, at least to me and, and many other people who watched that debate, as um, not only uh, dishonest, but extremely um, unlikable. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know what CNN is doing. It seems to me he's too much of a fringe player to be offered his own uh, town hall. But I have not read, uh, you know, any other rationale uh, beside, you know, that they had given the opportunity to yeah. other Republican candidates. So in the interest uh, of fairness, I, I can't imagine it's going to get, you know, it's going to get get a lot of eyeballs. Oh, you mean unlike that big uh, debate they did on <laughs> News Nation that everybody was watching? Not. Yeah, I never did. What were, I never did see the ratings on that. That was, it was the, the most, I, I I did watch it because I'm a junkie, but um, I don't know. <laughs> you what can't help yourself. That's right. Yeah. Um, well, b one of the columnists I read before the uh, News Nation debate took place said. Uh, on a good day, News Nation pulls in 67,000 viewers. Um, on a good day, Fox or MSNBC, the number is, the, on a good day, the number would be, you know, 3 million or more. 
Uh, and they were speculating, and this was a conservative commentator, they were speculating that the RNC picked News Nation on purpose because they know none of the people on the stage has a prayer, and they basically wanted to bury the debate so that they can start rebuilding their bridges to Donald Trump. What do you think about that? It seems to make um, a, a lot of sense. One thing that really bothered me about the debate uh, as you mentioned, sponsored by the Republican National Committee, is that they let um, the head of Judicial Watch, a Trump acolyte and fervent supporter named Tom Fitton, ask questions as if he was some sort of regular, you know, uh, participant, uh, where, in fact, um, he has been advising Donald Trump on legal matters, including the legality of keeping stolen documents at Mar-a-Lago. So the idea that he was allowed to participate as a questioner, I thought was a great disservice, not only to the viewers, but to the, the moderators, um, who certainly, you know, had, had the credentials to ask perfectly valid questions. So why you would have a, a rabid Trump partisan uh, allowed to ask questions at a so-called debate, to which, by the way, Donald Trump refused to attend, um, that struck me as uh, really odd and not helpful and really an insult to everybody involved. Well, <clears throat> we, um, we've seen some strange things from the Republican National Committee, and I don't think that that's going to change. I mean, they have this posture that they're one thing, when the reality seems to be that, you know, that it's another thing. And um, sooner or later, they're going to have to pick a side and stick to it. Uh, Chris Beery and I are uh, talking about uh, all kinds of events. Uh, by the way, uh, we're going to talk about Rudy Giuliani when we come back. His trial has gone to the jury. We are going to uh, discuss Rudy Giuliani. And, you know, Chris, he's part of my game. Were they always crazy or did they get crazy later in life? So maybe we can we can talk about that, too, when we come right back after this. Take Jonas Pazito live, local and progressive with you on the go by using the tune in app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. Hey, Google, play WCPT streaming Chicago's progressive talk from tune in. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. And I am joined by my good friend Chris Bury, the DePaul journalist in residence, former network news guy. Uh, Rudy Giuliani's fate has gone to the jury. He is um, accused of defamation. He has made so many nasty, awful claims against Ruby Freeman and uh, Shea Moss, mother and daughter election workers, who have already testified in this trial that they were inundated with threats and racist insults after he falsely accused them of helping fake the Georgia election results. And um, he was admonished by the judge, Chris, and then went right outside to the sidewalk. He was asked if he was interested in apologizing to them, and he said, no, absolutely not, because everything I said was true. 
So uh, I don't know. What do you think is going to happen here? Well, already, um, you know, uh, Giuliani has been found guilty of defamation. Now this jury, uh, eight men and women, are going to decide what the punishment should be. So uh, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss um, are asking, or their lawyers are asking, for $24 million apiece, as well as unspecified additional amounts for emotional distress, and in addition to that, some kind of a punitive award to deter uh, future misconduct. But as you said, it was just absolutely remarkable that while Giuliani's lawyer is trying to save his hide in court, he goes out and appears to a bank of television cameras. He asked if he regretted what he said about Moss and Freeman. He said, of course I don't regret it. I told the truth. They were engaging in changing votes. And then the judge said that that statement could also be introduced as further evidence of defamation. Um, so, you know, at the very least, it was an incredibly, um, shall we say, reckless <laughs> thing to say, um, if not stupid. And the closing today, uh, from what I've read, no cameras in the courtroom, so we, we can't see, but the closing was incredibly weak. Giuliani, as of yesterday, said he was going to testify today mm -hmm. under oath. And of course, he did not. And his lawyer rather lamely said the reason Giuliani wasn't going to testify is because he didn't want to inflict any more harm, uh, you know, on the women, which uh, is, is really uh, a tall tale. So, yeah, it, it, it's pretty remarkable. Uh, the question is, how much money is Giuliani going to have to, uh, to cough up? Uh, CNN is reporting that uh, Giuliani has left the courtroom. The jury apparently is um, finished deliberating for the day and will resume again tomorrow. But um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought I read somewhere that especially after that last um, interview he gave after being found that he had indeed defamed them and then he went outside and defamed them again that the judge said something to his lawyer and his lawyer said something like judge in the courtroom i can control him outside of the courtroom i got no control over him yeah that seems uh, that seems pretty clear yeah. uh, and the, the interesting thing is you know financially you know, if these are, uh, you know, huge multi-million dollar um, verdicts, um, you know, Giuliani, you know, may really uh, not have the money to pay. Um, you know, he, uh, reportedly his New York City condo is on the market. And from what the lawyers are saying, and I'm not a lawyer, but the lawyers are saying that declaring bankruptcy does not protect you from a verdict like a defamation verdict. So he can't use bankruptcy to protect his his assets if, in fact, the uh, the jury comes up with a uh, a, a sizable award. Now, uh, Trump has held at least one fundraiser for him, but I don't think it's raised anywhere near uh, the kind of money that uh, Giuliani could be liable for. Well, it, hasn't he already said he doesn't even have money to pay his lawyers? 
Yeah, there was a you know there was that big fundraiser, uh, hundred thousand dollars per head uh, oh. that Trump. Uh, put on for him uh, a, a couple of months ago. I don't know how much uh, w- was raised, but certainly nothing in the ballpark uh, of what it would mean. Um, you know, we've seen this in other cases, um, you know, where, uh, you know, most notably with the, uh, you know, the, the Sandy Hook trial and um, Alex Jones with, you know, huge uh, verdict against Alex Jones, who spread the terrible lies about the the, the school massacre, um, and yet he is clearly, uh, according to court filings, trying to hide his assets from uh, from the families. So this is going to drag on for a long time. Giuliani's almost eighty years old, so you know who knows if if uh, Ruby Freeman and her daughter will ever see a, a dime of this. I know it. It does seem like uh, that. Even though they're asking for these damages, realistically, they have to understand that it might not ever come to that. But I would imagine that there's a part of them that just wants just wants to be vindicated, you know, whether or not they ever see big paychecks, just to let the world know and all the people who left those disgusting messages for them, just to let those people know that um, that those people were wrong. And, um, you know, just to just some sort of vindication would seem to me, while, you know, maybe not uh, quite as satisfying as a multimillion dollar check, but at least it's something. At least you just didn't, you know, let it roll over you and 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 and, you know, become silent and and skulk away. You know, I I would think that there's some there's something to be said for that. Yeah, I, I think at the, at the very least, uh, you know, a clear moral victory for two women who have been put through hell um, by these absolutely false, uh, malicious, defamatory statements made by uh, Rudy Giuliani and, of course, many others. What they endured, the, I mean, the racist messages, um, had to leave their homes, um, had to uh, get protection um, just and these are just ordinary, uh, you know, people, election workers who were proud to to do the job and serve their state and and, and be conscientious. And the lies, you know, about passing candy were computer chips and just all this, uh, you know, complete nonsense. And the thing that struck me more than anything is that you know Giuliani was so willing to use ordinary people as if they were just, you know, ciphers, as if they were just some kind of, you know, nameless pawns. Were, these are, you know, real people, uh, modest people, um, mm-hmm. whose lives were upended um, and emotionally and, and mentally, their, their health was certainly damaged just because Giuliani and his cohorts were willing to tell these lies in order to illegally keep uh, Trump in power. Yeah. And this is in all in all seriousness, I do have a very serious game. Were they always crazy and we just didn't notice or did they become crazy later in life because Rudy Giuliani is a lawyer or at least you know before uh 
in the before times, he was a very well-respected lawyer. Uh, Chris, shouldn't somebody like that know what constitutes defamation? Shouldn't somebody like that know that if you've been found guilty of defamation, you don't walk out on the street to a group of reporters and defame those people again? This is what I'm talking about. It makes no sense to me. There must have been some some point, and I'm sure, you know, journalists and scholars have looked at, at what point that Giuliani, you know, turned. Because, as you said, you know, he's a uh, was an attorney. He's a, a former federal prosecutor who had, you know, went after the Gotti crime family in New York and certainly was a very successful U.S. attorney and uh, mayor of New York City uh, during 9-11 and you know, at one point widely um, respected. And, you know, to have him go down this rabbit hole um, all on behalf of, of Donald Trump does seem to be just wild. And, you know, it, it does make you wonder, you know, where in that arc of his life, you know, things went, went south. I mean, he certainly got uh, caught up in the Trump mania, um, and he certainly knew what he was doing. Uh, but he also, it's been well documented, you know, he was having um, drinking problems. There were reports of him being pretty inebriated at some of those White House meetings when all of this stuff was going on. Then, of course, the famous scene at uh, Four Seasons Total Landscaping, uh, you know, where he was making these wild allegations and his hair dye was running down the side of his face. But you raise a great, great question. You know, when did Rudy uh, turn? I don't know the answer. Yeah. I'm talking to Chris Bury, DePaul journalist in residence. We are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this. If you missed any of today's show, you can listen on SoundCloud or iTunes. Just search WCPT 820. Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk. 820 AM. WCPT Willow Springs. And online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Chris Bury, who is the DePaul University journalist in residence after a long career as a network news guy. Chris, I saw in your note to me that you're taking a group of students to Iowa for the Republican caucuses. Now, I've I've got to tell you, Casey DeSantis got in real trouble when she told the people of Florida that they should go to Iowa to be a part of the caucuses. Are you sure you're not going to get these students in? trouble (laughs) yeah i just hope that uh the students get to see some of the some of the candidates you know the democrats and republicans caucus in really uh interestingly different ways in iowa so when the democrats caucus um they show up at these uh, churches and and town halls and, and schools and they physically form coalitions uh, so, for example, I took a group of students four years ago, and we went caucus night, and there was, uh, you know, coalitions for, at that time, Biden and uh, Buttigieg and Klobuchar and, and Bernie. And people would stand in these groups until they reached a threshold of 15 percent. 
And if they didn't reach the 15 percent, then there were all, all kinds of, you know, arguing back and forth or, or discussion. And they would move around until they would, you know, join. And let's say, uh, for example, Klobuchar didn't reach 15 percent in a particular location. Well, uh, then those folks, those delegates would have to move to, to Biden or to Bernie or something like that. Well, the Republicans don't do that. The Republicans just have a – they do show up in person at the same kinds of places, schoolhouses and churches and so on. Um, but they cast a private ballot, um, and then that ballot is tabulated at the end of the night, and the people who are there talk about it. They discuss it and report it to headquarters. But it's not quite as uh, dramatic or visually you know, striking as it is for uh, the, the Democrats. But it is going to be interesting to see. I mean, I'm hoping that my students get to see these candidates in person. We're going to try to get into a Trump event. We'll try to get into a, a DeSantis event, a Nikki Haley event, and yes, even a Vivek Ramaswamy uh, <laughs> event, <laughs> if, we can, uh, if we can find one. But, you know, it's a great experience for these students because, you know, Iowa is really one of the few places where they can see candidates up close and personal. And I realize there are all kinds of arguments for and against the uh, Iowa as a place for the, this first in the nation. And, of course, the Democrats are not going to have a, have a caucus first in the nation this year. Um, but that said, it, it's great for students of democracy to be able to see these people with their own eyeballs and hear what they have to say. And it's a, it's a great experience. Now, you're describing these uh, Republican candidates as having um, separate events. I have never attended the Iowa caucuses, but when I've seen video, I thought the deal was they go to some place like a high school gym and that all the candidates were there. And then the people of Iowa could like go from candidate to candidate to hear what they had to say and to decide who they liked. Is Have I got that wrong then? Well, sort of. What happens is that the candidates just have regular appearances throughout Iowa, you know, in the weeks before the caucuses. But on caucus night, the candidates are not there. Um, on caucus nights, it's just groups of supporters. So it's really whoever is the most organized. And, of course, it differs by locales. You're going to have a slightly different crowd in a, a city such as Des Moines. Uh, than you will, you know, in a farming area of Iowa. So, no, the candidates are not there on caucus nights. It's their supporters um, who caucus. And the Democrats do it physically where you can, you know, count them and everybody can see how many there are at a particular location. But the Republicans don't do that. They just take a vote and then they have a discussion about uh, the vote later later in the night. Uh, but uh, we are planning to... Um, take my students to a, a caucus in Lynn County, which is uh, south of Cedar Rapids, but it's, uh, it's a place where we can get a pretty good representation of the Iowa voters. And do you have to, um, I mean, can, do you have to get any kind of accreditation to do that? Or do you just go there, you know, check into your hotel and then uh, head out to the caucuses and walk in? Well, um, I, I have gotten permission. I'm not sure, you know, whether or not we had to, although I think technically these are, are not public events. They're private events because they're open only to, you know, Republicans or Democrats. 
but um, I did contact the um, the county Republican chair of the county that we're going to, and he was very gracious and basically said, come on in, and you're welcome, and uh, if you uh, get into any trouble, use my <laughs> name. And So, um, you know, he was, he was very, uh, very open about it, and he's, he's happy to see, um, you know, students come up and, and, and take a look. Um, I think the question for us is, are we going to have trouble getting into certain candidate events? Like, are we going to have trouble getting into a Trump campaign appearance? I don't know yet. Um, we'll have to figure that out. I just know that four years ago, we were able to get into everybody, and the students got to see every single candidate, which was a, a great experience for them. How do you prepare your students for that? I mean, do you talk about what the, they're like? You're likely to hear the candidates say, or um, you know, practice your interviewing skills with the Iowans in the crowd. <laughs> Seriously. Well, well, last year we had a little more time because the, the caucuses were in February. Um, this year, they're the, the second week of class, so we're not going to have a lot of time. I think I have two class periods before we leave, so it'll be basically, of, okay, here's how the Iowa caucus works. Here's what we're going to do. Um, you know, I'll bring a cooler, so if you want water, you know, <laughs> you can put the, the water in the cooler. Um, and, you know, we'll probably uh, talk a little bit about just, you know, the mechanics of the caucus, and hopefully we'll have a schedule of candidates we'll be able to to visit. And there are some, you know, good stories they can work on. And one of the good stories is, is Iowa, you know, the right place to have a first-in-the-nation political event. Um, you know, there's a big argument, especially in the Democratic Party, yeah. that Iowa is is too white and mm -hmm. too rural and not representative. And even though it's, you know, there's a lot of great citizen participation, it is so unrepresentative of the Democratic Party uh, that, that the Democrats should not and they're not going to do it this year for the first time. And, and that is, you know, believe me, that's ticked off a lot of Iowa. Democrats. Well, I was going to ask you about that because I've been reading a lot about that. Like, like um, Iowans are so insulted that, you know, they may not vote Democratic in the numbers that they have voted before, because how dare the Democratic Party and not allow them to be first and foremost? Yeah, yeah, that'll be interesting to see whether that sentiment really holds. I mean, you know, right now Biden has no significant um, opposition in the party outside of the, the Congressman Phillips, and he doesn't seem to be gaining much traction. So it, it, because there's an incumbent president, unless something dramatic happens between now and then, it probably on the Democratic side is, is not going to be much of a factor. On the other side of the same coin, you could argue that Iowa is – pretty representative of today's Republican Party <laughs> because it's old, it's white, and it's rural. So, you know, the Republicans actually can say, hey, you know, Iowa is a state that looks pretty much like us, and they have two Republican senators and they're a Republican governor, uh, and it's basically, you know, trended red over the last pre few presidential elections. So, you know, for Republicans, it actually is a pretty representative place. Yeah. Uh, Chris Beery and I are going to take a break. And when we come back, you may have heard him mention Dean Phillips. Dean Phillips is a Democratic congressperson from Minnesota 
who uh, announced that he thought it would be a good idea if somebody primaried Joe Biden. And he talked to a lot of people and they didn't want to do it. So he decided he better do it himself. We're going to discuss Dean Phillips when we come right back after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. Uh, Chris Beery is here. He's the DePaul journalist in residence after a long time career reporting the news for uh, various network outlets. Dean Phillips. Now, I know we've talked about him on this show before, listeners, but you probably forgot the name uh, because he's an eminently forgettable. He is the congressperson from Minnesota who announced that he was going to challenge Joe Biden. He was going to primary Joe Biden, mostly because he couldn't get anybody else to do it. And he felt that somebody should. Okay. Well, uh, the Minneapolis Star Tribune is reporting on his uh, progress by telling us that, you know, he might just wrap things up, Chris, this March if he doesn't really do well on Super Tuesday. But but he'd really like to stay in it um, until the Democratic National Convention. But, you know, that just might not be viable. What the heck is going on here? I'm confused. Well, I think the key thing to remember is that Dean Phillips is very wealthy. <laughs> and um, he can self-fund his uh, campaign for quite a while. And the other thing to remember about Dean Phillips is some of his key uh, strategists are Republicans. Um, so it's a very kind of odd mix. Um, I saw him during an extended interview a couple of weeks ago. And what struck me is that he has one argument um, beyond Biden's age, and that is that Biden's poll numbers are not great. Yet this is coming from a man who is generally polling below 5% uh, in public opinion polls. So for somebody like that to make uh, poll numbers his you know, single most the important argument about Biden kind of had me laughing out loud because, you know, that is an argument that will not take you very far. And when the interviewer tried to press and say, well, what else, um, you know, what else you know, do you have um, that, that were, were you would specifically perform better than Biden? He really did not have much, a, much of an answer. So uh, it, it seems to me at this point anyway, there is no great hunger uh, for Dean Phillips among the people who are likely to vote, um, you know, in, in Democratic primaries next year. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And um, he, he reminds me a little bit of um, Nikki Haley in that, you know, as you said, he does have some Republican money behind him. But he has said repeatedly that his campaign, Chris, you may not know this, his campaign won't weaken Biden. Uh, and here's his quote. Let's let's parse this. I will not say something about the president that will undermine him in a way that I think is not already perfectly clear. Got that? Did you get that, Chris? Yeah, that seems to be a trans to me. I mean, just 
it seems to be, if you want to parse that, he's really saying, uh, I'm a lot younger than Biden. That seems <laughs> to be all that that, you know, is saying. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. He's coming under, you know, fire from a lot of Democrats, most notably Senator John Fetterman of uh, Pennsylvania, who has really gone on the attack against, uh, you know, Phillips in, in recent weeks. And he is concerned uh, that those attacks are uh, are damaging. And, and, and according to Fetterman, even more damaging than, than giving money to Trump. Um so, you know, Fetterman, I, I saw him on CNN um, saying this a little while ago, and uh, it, it is interesting. Um, so we'll, we'll have to see uh, as we look into these primaries. I, I guess uh, Phillips is on the ballot in New Hampshire. Um, so that's, you know, that'll be the, the first test. Okay, we've talked about Phillips. Now we need to talk about RFK Jr., Cornell West. I don't think we need to talk about Marianne Williamson, but also no labels. Uh, no labels, this sort of uh, Republican effort to get around. I think it's a Republican effort to try to get around MAGA by pretending they're this new organization that is nonpartisan, which is since it is created by Republicans and funded by Republicans is a bit of a is a bit of a stretch. That's one thing. If it were just Donald Trump versus Joe Biden with no other distractions, I would feel pretty confident that Joe Biden was going to get a second term. But when you throw in our stupid electoral college and uh, no labels, which may or may not be on the ballot, RFK Jr., which that candidacy just drives me crazy and others. It's concerning. I am concerned. Yeah, there's no question. Um, and it's not clear yet uh, exactly how RFK is going to um, cut uh, RFK Jr. with the voters. There's, you know, you can make an argument that um, he is likely to get some uh, voters from Biden as, as well as Trump. But I think the no labels is a little more problematic because it will give uh, independents and, you know, any moderate Republicans will give them an excuse to not vote for Biden or Trump. Um, and the two most prominent politicians or political figures who are you know, being bandied about as potential uh, for the top of the ticket there, of course, are Senator Joe Manchin, uh, the Demo current Democratic senator from West Virginia who is not going to seek reelection, and former uh, Maryland governor, Republican Larry uh, Hogan. Um, I don't know whether either of those uh, gentlemen have you know, national traction. Uh, Hogan was a very popular Republican governor in a Democratic state um, in Maryland. But I think that that is clearly um, a threat uh, to, to Biden, depending on if they get on the ballot. And um, as you suggested, all the money uh, or most of the money going to no labels is from Republican donors. So um, there is a, a huge uh, concern that they are a stalking horse that is going to, to benefit Trump. And I think Democrats uh, are rightly worried about that. Yeah, I think appropriately so. I mean, 
I have to share with you that I am no fan of the Koch network or the Koch family, but at least they came out and said, we're putting our money behind Nikki Haley. You know, they didn't say, oh, we're, you know, we're going to be the big underwriters of no labels here, because I think we've seen that Republicans in office do not have the courage to turn their back on the MAGA movement. I think that a lot of them feel disgusted by it in private, but would never, ever say anything publicly because it is their own political career on the line. I think it is up to the deep-pocketed Republican donors to say, once and for all, we've had enough of this Donald Trump nonsense. And I think the Koch network, by saying, you know what, we're going to start writing checks for Nikki Haley, I think that they did that, and I would like to see more of that going forward. I would like to see the money that's secretly funding no labels, you know, take a stand. Let, let the legislators know we're not gonna, we're not gonna pay for the crazy anymore. But, um, I don't know. What do you think? I think you're giving too much credit, uh, <laughs> too much, cur- and too much courage, um, to the, to the donors because I think that, um, you know, if it comes around that Trump wins the Republican uh, nomination, uh, and it sure looks like he's going to, um, that money's going to come back around. And we've already seen, just in the last couple of days, you know, the Republican governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, um, who everybody kind of thought was, oh, he's a moderate in a purple state. Well, he's already saying things like, oh, Trump really doesn't mean what he says. Oh, and don't I, give me that. Oh, oh yeah. No, no, I mean, he is he is basically coming around uh, to a position that supports uh, Trump. So I, I, I don't expect the donors to do anything differently. I mean, I think they're certainly going to wait until some of the dust settles. But if it's clear that Trump is the nominee and he's got a shot at winning, the money's going to go right back to Trump. That's, you know, again, that's just my, you know, my guess. That's all that's worth. And, um, you know, RFK Jr., I know, um, is kind of a fringe candidate, but seems to be getting more attention than a fringe candidate would otherwise get because of his name. You know, I mean, his family, Rory Kennedy, Carrie Kennedy, Joe Kennedy II, Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, felt the need to put out a statement. The decision of our brother Bobby to run as a third-party candidate against Joe Biden is dangerous to our country. Bobby might share the same name as our father, but he does not share the same values, vision, or judgment. Today's announcement is deeply saddening for us. We denounce his candidacy and believe it to be perilous for our country. His own family has put that statement out into the universe. And yet I still hear people talking him up. Yeah, no, and and I think that um, the research has shown that a lot of his views are not widely known, right? Yeah. A lot of people... Oh, they know his name. It's like Herschel Walker. You know, he was a great football player. I'll vote for him for Senate because he's famous, and, you know, how bad could he be? Tommy Tuberville, good coach. How bad could he be in the Senate? You know, he's a leader of men. Yeah. Yeah, and and, and people don't know about, you know, the, the sort of radical... Uh, conspiracy, um, anti-vax background of RFK. There is one interesting development in all this, and that is um, Richard Gebhardt, the former um, you know congressman from Missouri and uh, former leader uh, of the House Minority. Um, he is now starting a group to fight 
uh, RFK and No Labels and Cornell West and Jill Stein, and they've already he, st- he started a group, and they I believe they made their first ad buy in the last just check this, I believe it's in the last month or so, or even the last, yeah, in the last couple of weeks, they are starting to put commercials on the air um, saying that any of these third-party candidates, you know, West, Stein, RFK, no labels, that any of them are basically um, going to be a vote for Trump. So we'll see. But that's going to be a new development where we're going to see people are going to see these TV ads, not only for the third party candidates, but for, you know, this this organization and perhaps others trying to defeat them. I am. We're out of time. But just I looked up. Uh, him, uh, Richard Gebhardt, while you were while you were talking, and uh, according to NPR, this organization he's forming is bipartisan. Um, so I'm going to be looking into. Did you know off the top of your head? I don't see a name for it. Do they have some catchy name yet? Yes, it's called Citizens to Save Our Republic. Okay, Thanks. good. I will. I will be looking that up. Citizens to Save Our Republic. Chris, um, I hope you have a great New Year. I will be talking to you in 2024. Stay safe, have fun, and um, have fun at the Iowa caucuses. All right, thank you, and have a wonderful holiday, John. You too. That is going to do it for me today. Driving at Home with Patty Vasquez is up next. Remember, Santita will be here at 6 a.m., and I will be here tomorrow at 2 p.m. We will do our usual first half of the show, just talking to you and taking your calls and uh, exploring the news of the day and the news of the week. I look forward to it. Take care, my friends. I will see you tomorrow. Good night.